Hey everybody, thanks for listening to Tara and Andrew versus the Scarecrow Video Movie Guide. I'm Andrew. I'm Tara. This is part 26 of our 3,726 part series. So only 3,700 more episodes to go. I know, go. yeah, it's a milestone. Yeah, it's a huge milestone. Number 26, never thought we'd make it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah part of me didn't. Alright, so in this podcast, we randomly select a movie from the Scarecrow Video Movie Guide, watch it, review it, and do a little research. So the main rule for our podcast is no vetoes are allowed. We have to watch whatever movie we choose as long as neither of us have ever seen it. With a few exceptions, but yeah. we'll, we'll bring those up if we run into them. We'll invoke them as needed. Yep. So yeah, last week we watched The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, uh, a Western from 1962, and we both liked it uh, quite a lot. Yeah, we're on a, a Western roll. If this is a, I don't know, if it's another Western, I'm going to start to be suspicious. <laughs> yeah. So it's Andrew's turn to randomly select a movie from the guide. So I'm going to ask you to clench your eyes very tightly. And I will Painfully start tight. Start flipping. Okay. All right. Uh, stop. Okay. Uh, you got Dog Day Afternoon. We have to choose a different one. Okay. Okay. We're watching The Thief of Baghdad from 1940. Okay. 106 minutes, directed by Michael Powell. At least four directors helmed pieces of this lavish Arabian Nights fantasy, produced by British mogul Alexander Korda, including Powell in his color film debut. Sabu stars as the vagabond street kid who fights the evil Grand Vizier, Conrad Vate in high villain mode. With the help of his giant genie in the bottle, Rex Ingram joyfully hamming it up, romantic leads... John Justin and June Dupre feel like dull afterthoughts next to the flamboyant fun had by these three. The glorious art direction by William Cameron Menzies creates an amazing world for the fantastical wonders of flying carpets, mechanical horses, and a 50-foot genie with a bellowing laugh. Hmm. It won Oscars for its vivid fairy tale color cinematography by George Perrinal, art direction, and special effects. For the record, Ludwig Berger and Tim Whelan were the other credited directors. Zoltan Korda has recently been, quote, officially, end quote, acknowledged as an uncredited director, and Alexander Korda and Menzies are also said to have contributed scenes. Hmm. Well, that sounds interesting. Yeah. You said uh, 1940? 1940. Okay, yep. so I just came up with a new idea for a segment. Uh, it's called, how racist is this movie going to be? <laughs> On a scale from, <laughs> from uh, let's come up with like um, like two movies. I don't know. I can't really. Uh, we'll figure out. We'll we'll, we'll we'll come up with the scale. We have time to figure <laughs> yeah. out the scale. So yeah, I uh, like that idea. Uh, just I don't know. Let's just for right now for as a temporary scale, let's say like one to five. Okay. We can figure out clever names for the one being not very racist. One being not very racist. Five being all racist. All racist all the time. I'm going to guess this is going to be at least a four. I'm going to say three. I th- I think that it has the potential to be like very whitewashed, but I don't know that it's, there's going to be a oh, lot of... Oh, maybe. No? Well, Thief of Baghdad, based on the Arabian Nights. Yeah. It's probably even... So, given the cast is going to be super whitewashed. Yeah. We already know that. But beyond that, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of characterizations. You don't have to... You can go with a three. I'm going with a four. 
I'll go now. I think you're right. You're, you're right. I will go with the four. Here, let me talk you up. No, I mean, it's from the 1940s. There's a good, good there's chance. A, there's a good chance. Yeah. This was mid-World War II. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, four. I'm sold on that. Okay. So, Not that that had anything to do with... Well, uh, I mean, at the time. The Middle East, but... <laughs> no, but just... Yeah. Not... We've, we've seen, like, for... Bugs Bunny cartoons that came out in the same yeah, era. Yeah, not an era known for, like, racial sensitivity right. in, by any stretch. Okay. Uh, okay, so I've got that to look forward to. Stay, stay tuned to see how well our prediction of the racism levels uh, panned out. And uh, we will be back after this musical interlude. journey <laughs> the, the sights we've seen we saw some sovereigns of silkiness uh, yes yes uh, <laughs> we saw flying horses and well, that's pretty much it that's all there was <laughs> everybody's probably eagerly awaiting the uh the results of our racism analysis but we'll save that for for later in the episode just have to dangle that carrot out in front of you oh the carrot of racism carrot of racism <laughs> yeah. uh Huh. Yeah. Okay. Don't put that in a salad. <laughs> Don't put it in anything, probably. Unless you want a racist salad. Nobody wants that. No. Except for racist. Just all carrots. Just be yeah. like entirely. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll be touching on that a little later. But uh, I guess we should do our rating. Yeah. So our five-point scale, as always, uh, starts with don't watch at the low end. Then maybe don't watch. Eh, maybe watch, and at the top of the scale, don't not watch. Do you have a rating in mind? I have. All right. Let me count of three. Okay. One, two, three. Maybe eh. watch. Yeah, see, I think we were having the same conflict. Yes, totally. Yeah, I I was tormented. You probably could hear the hesitation in my voice just then. but I, Right. Could not decide. Between... There's definitely a lot to like in the movie, yeah. but there's also a lot that I didn't like as much, or that I didn't buy, or maybe I'm just like too too cynical, yeah, or and hardened by the world. I don't know. I think if I'd watched this as a kid, I would have absolutely loved it. It is definitely aimed more towards uh, the kid market, I would say. Yeah, kid audience for sure. Super bright and colorful, yeah. and really. Uh, pretty sets and costumes and so it had all that going for it uh, yeah. definitely something that will be attractive to kids yeah for sure it was made in 1940 and like technicolor had been around really since 1922 but i think it really hadn't started becoming frequently used until the late 30s um like there was a couple of films in like 38 or something and then of course, notably Wizard of Oz. Yes, uh, like 20 films in 39 and then 1940 when this was released. So it was beginning to come into its popularity. And you can really tell just due to the, the ridiculous color yeah, of everything in the movie, pretty much. It's super vivid and uh, just, just like, like every color all over. Make that building blue. 
Make that guy's hat green. All right. So it's definitely, I mean, that kind of adds to the, the fantasy feel to it for sure. I mean, not that, you know, there's genies well, and stuff in it too, so that, that helps with the, the fantasy vibe. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it's really the building, <laughs> the color of the buildings. The, the color of the buildings is, you know, really what it tells you it you're in a fantasy you. world. Yeah. Well, oh, that building's purple. You could never have a purple building in real life. Oh, yeah, ginger beer. <laughs> Reads extra ginger brew. Oh, Verner's is not going to like that, i got to tell you. All natural Jamaican style ginger beer. Taste the zing. I, I would like it to. It doesn't say that. These are the kinds of things I can add to your brand. Yeah, you not only invented a, a song for them, just <laughs> like out of the blue, unsolicited, but unsolicited. you also came up with a new slogan. Uh, like yeah, an, I did. That's... Yeah, If they don't hire you, it's a missed <laughs> opportunity on that part. Let's, uh, let's get into the plot. All right. Plot it up, dudes. Plot it up. I'm about to. Plot it up. That's what I was born to do. Yeah. Born to plot. He's got a plot. Crisscross reference for for everybody there. Yeah, so the the movie opens up. We see the main character, Ahmed, being convinced by his vizier, Jafar, to go mingle amongst the crowds to kind of get in touch with the the common folk in his, like, kingdom, right? Well, he's the sultan. Oh, he's the sultan, too. So Jafar is like, hey, you should find out what the people are thinking. Your father did this, or your grandfather once did this. Go and uh, see what they think and, uh, you know, how you can better lead the people or whatever. And uh, and so he does. And what he finds out is that everybody hates his guts. And, uh, like, nobody has a kind thing to say about them. They all just want to punch him right in the face at the, the least inexplicably we have no idea why yeah. they hate him this much he seems totally fine he's totally inoffensive he, no, maybe well he's kind of a he is kind of a ditz he seems like a he is one. a ditz and uh he has the worst pickup lines which we'll talk about later okay. but uh yeah apart from that in terms of as as a leader you know we could we we do a lot worse yeah so he he finds out that everybody hates him and he's kind of shook by this and uh jafar has him arrested and thrown into prison with uh, the orders to have him murdered the next day and he's thrown into prison with a thief that had been caught after a very like warner brothers the almost chase sequence yeah where what is it he even steals he, uh, oh he steals a fish from the marketplace he steals two fish to give it to some men who are hungry and then he gets chased off and there's a very comical sound effects that play throughout all of this and it's just like what it's totally like right out of Bugs Bunny. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's very kind of Chuck Jonesy. So the two of them are sitting in the cell together, and Abu, the thief, is like, well, let's, I can get us out of here. Let's get out of here. Abu says that they need to wait until after the guards eat their meal, because <laughs> then they go to sleep. And it's like, really? They haven't figured out like shift rotations yet? I mean, <laughs> for this big of a, an area, like this larger population, they don't. Nah. Their, their prison security is fine. This lacks. Yeah, so they hadn't really figured out the whole jail thing too great by that point. No. So they, the two of them escape. They're they're on the run. They flee to Basra. Where um, they hear that there's this really beautiful princess that nobody's allowed to see. So, of course, Ahmed's like, shit, I gotta see this princess. They sneak to the palace to catch a glimpse of this beautiful princess. And Ahmed pretends he's a genie in a pond somehow gets the princess's attention and she's just so 
fixated by this magical genie in the pond. So he's like, haha, actually, no, it's me. Here I am. I'm a dude. And uh, let's be together forever, forever yeah, and ever, just yeah. immediately. He immediately. Well, what he says is even way worse than that. It's like, I've traveled across time and the ends of the earth to find you and like that kind of garbage. Yeah. Just like immediately upon seeing this woman. It's like, my dude, you just saw her for the first time like seven hours you ago. You just peeped her once. And uh, the princess is super into this and decides she loves him too because that's what you do. Um, I guess if she's not been allowed to be seen by anybody apart from her father and, like, the women who live in the palace, then give her a little leeway. She's not seen yeah. a guy before. So her she's father, like, oh, oh, hey, you're a guy. Her father really doesn't make a model impression of guys, I would say, just because he's more in love with toys than he is with her. Uh, he's more in love with toys than he is, at, like, anything. Yes. Well, we haven't been introduced to him yet, but we will soon. So... Lo and behold, our buddy Jafar from the beginning of the movie, he decides to show up in Basra because he also has heard tell of this beautiful princess and decides that he wants to marry her. So he rides into town on a flying mechanical horse. When the sultan meets Jafar, the sultan like fluffs up his mustache and then goes and gives Jafar kisses on his cheeks. So, so that should be everybody's new greeting from now on. I, I think... Even if you... If you don't have a mustache, just yeah, just you know, you fluff know, your just fluff your, your air mustache and, and kiss each other's cheeks. Yep. The Sultan of Basra is super into toys, and so off the bat, he's like, "Whoa, this guy Jafar knows what's up." Like he knows exactly what's going to appeal to him. So he's like, "You can have my magical flying horse if you let me marry your daughter." And the Sultan's like, "Yeah, done." Yeah, doesn't even hardly think uh, about done. it, which is pretty cool. You know, it's a it's very fatherly behavior. So um. the princess is like eavesdropping on this whole conversation. And she's like, uh, I don't want to marry this dude Jafar. I met this pawn genie who's really cool. So I'm just going to escape. And so she runs away. Ahmad shows up at the palace and he's like, oh my God, the princess is gone. And Jafar is here and Jafar says, oh yeah, you're not going to be able to see the princess again. And now you're blind. Well, and- before that, it's one of my, like, oh. I think one of the, my favorite lines from the movie where uh, Ahmad is like, Oh, we meet face to face, man to man, sword to sword. Give me a sword. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, getting a little works. ahead of yourself. Yeah. yeah. And so Abu, the thief, is still with Ahmad, and Jafar is like, okay, well, you're going to be a dog now. And so he turns Abu into this really cute fluff. Super, super cute dog. Yeah. Yep. Jafar is like, okay, this spell is only going to be broken if I, Jafar, can hold the princess in my arms. And goodbye. So that's that. That's that. And then what we didn't really mention before is that this was all kind of being told in a flashback. Um, Ahmad's been telling this to uh, a group of women. The the uh, sovereigns of silkiness. The sovereigns, the aforementioned The aforementioned sovereigns. sovereigns of silkiness. Yes. As he dubs them. As stated before, this guy's very smooth. We learned that uh, the princess, after fleeing, had been captured by slavers and then she'd been bought by somebody... They'd gotten a hold of her somehow. And the reason they've gotten they've gotten a hold of her is because she was bought by Jafar. And uh, that's actually where Ahmed is, right then and there. And he doesn't yeah. really know it. But Yeah, because he's blind. He yeah. doesn't realize he's been taken into Jafar's home. So he's like telling this to all of Jafar's harem. And Jafar's just kind of looking in from the background, yeah. watching all this. 
bemused, mm-hmm. I'm sure. So, um, so the thing is, the prin- so the princess is there, but she's like in a deep sleep. There's this one servant. She's the one who first caught Ahmed at the beginning and like brought him to the palace. Mm. She says, wait a minute, the princess is here. And she's in a sleep, and I bet you can wake her up. Let's go. And so she takes Ahmed to the princess's bedside, and he starts talking. And then he, like, holds the princess's hand, and she's like, oh, no, this is the dream I keep having. It's the genie of the pond. And then he's like, no, it's me for reals. And she wakes up. The end. The end. No. Um, (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. There's another hour and 15 minutes of this movie. We're only halfway through, guys. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, they reunite briefly. Ahmad tells the princess, like, let's, let's get out of here. We'll, we'll get run away together. We'll meet up later. So uh, one of Jafar's servants tells the princess this blindness spell that's been placed on him can be cured. There's a doctor that lives on this ship that can undo this, this spell, this curse. And so the princess goes off to meet the doctor. But it's actually, no. there's no doctor. It's just Jafar. He tricked her into getting married on a boat. I guess. Because you couldn't escape, I guess. Yeah. So he locks her up and he is like, that's not totally a lie. Like, if, if you embrace me, then we, I'll restore Ahmed's sight. And so she does, reluctantly. And Ahmad gets uh, gets his sight back and then Abu turns back into a human from a dog, which is pretty disappointing. Very disappointing because it was a cute dog, as mentioned. So now that Ahmed's got his sight back, he's like, okay... We're going to go after that boat and we're going to get the princess. We never learned the princess's name this entire I, I was wondering that, like, throughout the course. Like, just look, did anybody mention her name? No, nah, nah. not needed. She's just a thing. Just princess. She's just a thing. That's yeah. one of the just issues Just a thing I to get. An object. Just an object. So they are in this tiny boat and they're trying to go after Jafar's ship. So Jafar stands up on the deck of the ship and he raises his arms to the air and goes... Wind! Wind! <laughs> yeah. And a big storm ensues, and Ahmad and Abu's boat is dashed upon the shore. It's like it's an impressive spell that he casts, but it's really lessened by the fact that he does have to shout wind. Yes. So dramatically. <laughs> yeah. Like, if Storm from the X-Men had to, like, shout, rain! To, <laughs> like, whatever, drown enemies or something, it'd be like, oh, she's, I mean, I guess her powers are cool or whatever, but it's but she has kind to... of weird. Yeah. So the princess is like, okay, they're not going to come to save me. Well, Jafar, will you please let me at least go see my dad and and Basra? And so Jafar's like, okay, which was kind of a weird thing. But he tells her that he'll do anything for her. She's like, well, I'll go back to Basra. And he's like, yeah, all right. So they show up and the princess is like, I don't want to marry Jafar. Please don't make me marry him. And then the sultan tells her, okay, you don't have to marry him. And Jafar gets pissed. He's, like, spying on this conversation. So he's like, I know what I'm going to do. And he shows up with another mechanical toy for the sultan called the Silver Maid, who is, like, this many-armed statue. And she does, like, this whole sort of dance thing. Um, And Jafar's like, you know, she's not just a cool toy. You can embrace her. And it's like, She's a sex doll. Yeah, the first, the first real doll. Yeah. Um, and so the sultan's like, hmm, I could get rid of all of my wives then because I'll just have her. And Jafar's like, yep. So sure can, buddy. Sure can, bud. Go for it. So the sultan goes up and hugs this statue and she pulls this large sharp pin from the back of her head and stabs the sultan to death. 
So now nothing's really standing in the way. Yeah, Jafar is just like, good, good. I've got a princess now. So at this point, they cut back to Abu on the beach, and he's trying to find Ahmed, and there's just nowhere to be found. Like the their ship that they've been on is totally destroyed, and um, then he sees this bottle. He sees this bottle on the shore, and he grabs it and opens it up, and immediately this giant genie comes bursting out of it, just like freedom, yay, freedom, just like overjoyed that's what he says right is it like his uh relief of being freed is a little troubling yeah i mean it's good to be freed from a, a bottle that we find out he's been in for two thousand years but he's there's a little bit of menace to the way that he's celebrating his freedom so abu quickly realizes that he's in over his head and he's like how did you fit in this tiny bottle that's ridiculous like you that just seems impossible and the genie is like well show you i'll go back in there and then abu just immediately caps the bottle back up and Sets uh, the terms of a, a deal with them where he can be released again, but he has to grant Abu three wishes. And so the, the genie agrees to this, and uh, Abu lets him back out. And the first thing that he wishes for is, like, the sausages that his mom used to make. And, like, that's... Because he's pretty hungry. Yeah, he's hungry. On one hand, fair enough, but on the other hand, those better be good sausages. That's those better be damn the good best sausages. sausages. And so, the second, like, I don't even remember how they get into the deal because he doesn't use a wish to find out about the seeing eye the seeing eye he's like gosh my friend i'm trying to find my friend i don't know where he is and the dean is like well i know how you can find him like there's this statue with an all-seeing eye and uh the the eye will show you where your friend is um let's go let's go you know and like, for some reason, Genie just does this out of the kindness yeah, of his heart, it's like I guess. Yeah, that's a freebie, I guess. Yeah, total freebie. Um, although... So he uh, he flies Abu on his back to this faraway place where this all-seeing eye statue is. And he's like, okay, you gotta go go figure out where the statue is and, you know, have fun. Goodbye. There's this whole ordeal of Abu getting in there and getting the eye. And then as he's trying to escape, he gets into this, it's like a shaft um and at one end of the shaft is this giant horrible spider and at the other end is uh, a big nasty looking octopus and it's yeah it's just so true to life you know like if the oh, spider yeah. doesn't get you the octopus will you know you're not caught between a rock and a hard place you're caught between a giant spider and an octopus yep exactly so abu fights off the spider and then he escapes with the all-seeing eye and he, he uses it to find out where ahmad is and so that's his second wish he's like okay genie take me to ahmad and so genie's like yep you got it so they fly to where Ahmad is, and they're at first really happy about seeing each other, and then Abu's like, look, I've got this really cool eye. You can now look and see where the princess is. So Ahmed's like, yes. And he starts staring into the, the eye, and he sees the princess looking really sad, but Ahmed's like, yay, look, it's the princess. <laughs> oh, I can see her. Why even just why even <laughs> go back to her? You just, you've got yeah, the eye. You can just yeah. see her anytime you want. You could just see her anytime. Done. Um, but he keeps watching, and he he sees that she's hanging out with Jafar, and he's like, "Hey, look! There's this blue rose." And Ahmed's like, "Oh shit! I've heard tell about this blue rose. If you smell it, you forget everything. Please don't smell it, princess." So the princess, of course, sees this blue rose and like, "Oh, let me just stick my nose in that." And she sniffs deeply. It's like, oh, that smells wonderful. And she's just like sitting there smiling. And Jafar goes, hey, so do you know who you are? 
oh no, I don't know who I am. And she's like, do you remember anything? The princess says, no, no, I don't really remember anything. And she's just grinning. And so Jafar is like, you know, actually we're in love and we're getting married. And the prince is like, oh yeah, okay, that sounds good. At this point, Ahmed stops looking at it and he's just like pissed. And so he kind of lashes out and uh, in the process of doing so, like Abu, he hits Abu and Abu's like, he's like, I wish you were gone to Baghdad. And Junie's like, done, all right. And sure enough, Ahmad is out of there. He's, he's back in Baghdad and, uh, and Abu is just left there in the middle of nowhere in this mountainous, desolate hellscape. Yeah, because the genie's like, I'm out now. Yep, uh, that, that, that was your last wish. See ya. <laughs> you're, you're a resourceful young lad, so. <laughs> so Abu is understandably pretty upset about this, and he smashes the eye out of frustration. And when he does this, it transports him to the, the land of, what was it? The, the land of legend. To the, to the land of legend. Super, like, inexplicable. Yeah. Everything about this whole segment yeah. is pretty inexplicable. Yeah, it's like a bunch of old Merlin-y looking dudes. Like Merlin. hanging out in some tents. Yeah. And Pink and orange tents. And they they think that Abu is some kind of royalty or something that he's going to take over for them. And one of them is like, you can have all of this. Just don't take my magic flying carpet away. Please, it, it can take you anywhere and it's wonderful. Please, just take anything but that carpet. I'm going to use it to fly to paradise. Yeah. Um, here's a magic crossbow. Don't go anywhere on my carpet. And so Abu, of course, does. He just is like eyeing it from the moment that he hears that it's a magic flying carpet, eyeing it covetously. So while Abu's eyeing this carpet and planning, uh, like throwing his, his belongings, his new newly gotten belongings on this carpet, the old guy who owns it, like, peeks through some curtains at him and he looks kind of sad and he just closes the curtains and... Yeah, he just resigns himself to it immediately. <sighs> Abu takes the flying carpet, rides it back to Baghdad. When he gets to Baghdad, he sees that Jafar's trying to execute Ahmad. So he shoots the executioner with his crossbow and picks up uh, Ahmad and they start flying up toward where Jafar and the princess are. And Jafar's like, uh-uh, come on, princess. And he tries to take her onto his, his magical mechanical flying horse. And... She sees Ahmad and immediately is like, oh, wait, I remember you. Yeah, so it's a, it's a real great rose you got there. Yeah, it's a good blue rose. Yeah. Good job. Yeah, super effective. <laughs> super effective for like a minute. Yeah. So Jafar is like, okay, I'm going to just get on this horse by myself. And he goes off into the clouds. And then Abu shoots him with the crossbow. And then they have a ceremony where Ahmad and the princess and Abu are all just standing on stage in front of the, the adoring crowd of people and talking about how great they're gonna make things and then he's like and abu is gonna become my my new vizier and i'm gonna send him off to school to the best schools for a long time and it's uh he's gonna become super smart he's gonna be a model to every every child in baghdad and abu was already looking pretty fidgety with the uh, uncomfortable clothing that he'd been put in but as soon as he hears that he's like uh gonna he just peace like, out on yeah this. he just pieces out and um it's like wait a minute where are you going he's like i did what you want to do now it's time for me to do what i want to do i'm going on an adventure <laughs> and he flies off on the magic carpet into a rainbow the end the end he just was on an adventure he was just on an he, amazing he, adventure he literally just finished an adventure 
So, so a couple things we, we found out about, uh, and then we'll get into the racism talk. Yeah. The, the much-anticipated racism talk. <laughs> feel free, uh, anybody who doesn't want to hear things being pointed out as being racist, uh, feel, feel free to just, um, don't turn the podcast off. Just, uh, go into the other room for, <laughs> like, 40 or 50 minutes. I think that's enough about that one. Yeah, no. So before we do that, though, we'll, we'll talk about some of the stuff we found out about the, the Thief of Baghdad. Yeah. The movie has been released a lot of different times, obviously, originally. It came out in 1940, but it was uh, re-released in, like, the, the 70s and 90s, I think. And then, again, uh, by Criterion in 2008. And um, so, you know, Criterion, obviously, they're pretty pretty serious about the products that they put out. And so they were kind of trying to figure out what the best copy of the movie was to, to get their transfer from. And uh, surprisingly, it wasn't the version from the 90s that they used. They actually found out that the version from the 70s was like in much better condition which is just crazy like it had better color better resolution and like the, the timing on things was a lot better so i thought that was weird and yeah it doesn't usually happen that way yeah so something i saw which was pretty cool is that the thief of baghdad was like the first major use of blue screen in a movie I mean, pretty remarkable yeah any kind of chroma key stuff blue screen green screen that's been used yeah. Billions of times in the last Ever 80 since. years. Yeah, <laughs> just about. Um, yeah, it, it all started here, which is pretty crazy. Yeah. Some of the cast had pretty interesting backgrounds. So Conrad Veidt, who played Jafar, was a, a German actor. And so he ended up leaving Germany. While he was there, he was pretty upset about all the anti-Semitism and was very, very anti-Nazi. Um, in fact, when Goebbels had this kind of like racial questionnaire that he insisted that everybody in, in Germany complete, Conrad put that he was a Jew on there, even though he wasn't Jewish. His wife was though. And he was like, you know what? This is bullshit. And then they took off to England to get out of that situation, which was good thinking. Yeah. But some interesting things about him in his career before then, he was in the very famous cabinet of Dr. Caligari as the creepy somnambulist, uh, Cesare. Another interesting thing about one of the roles he was in, um, he played a guy in The Man Who Laughs whose face had been cut into a permanent grin, and that actually served as the visual inspiration for the Joker. Yeah, so I mean, it, it's a really influential movie in a lot of different ways. The, the last thing about the the cast uh, that was pretty interesting was that Sabu, who was uh, the Indian child actor who played Abu, he served as a servant uh, to the Maharaja when he was younger, which just is like, what a weird yeah. turn in career from like servant to Maharaja to the child actor. Yeah, and he ended up moving to the LA area and... Um... I actually read, he like joined the military and he was like a gunner in the Air Force. Yeah. I think in World War II. Yeah, I saw that he died really young. So he, yeah, he died. Several of the actors actually died of heart attacks, like wow. when they're in their either 50, like 50s or 60s. And two of them, I think, are buried in the same cemetery in London, oh. which was weird. Weird. Yeah. Yeah. Funny coincidence. Okay, and then just uh, one last thing real quick, speaking of World War II and things of that nature, um, the, the movie was shot in Britain and in Hollywood. And uh, it, so the, the reason why they had to change the shooting location from Britain to Hollywood was because of the German airstrikes that were being done on London. Um, and so like Sabu had grown several inches in the, uh, the meantime during the, the transition from one location to the other. So they had to have him reshoot several scenes. And then 
One way you can tell which scene was shot where is by looking at the outfits that the women are wearing. The scenes that were shot in the U.S., had to comply with like much more stringent censorship standards so like if you see a scene where a woman is wearing a shirt that's like buttoned up to the top you can be pretty sure that that was the scene that was filmed in the u.s understandably like even in the 60s when they were making i dream of Jeannie, she couldn't show her belly button you know yeah salacious yeah okay so let's get to the racism chat so yeah i think there's a lot of we originally said four yeah. I mean, it, like, we have to kind of establish the scale, too, I think. like if, I think we need to work on that, yeah. Yeah, so, like, if one is, like, a grandma with no malicious intent to be racist, but just is yeah. racist, uh, and, like, five is David Duke. Ooh. I put this Ooh. closer to closer the Closer to the one. <laughs> yeah, like, it was maybe one or two. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think anything was done maliciously. All the main actors pretty much were, you know, of European background. Right, yeah. Uh, apart from Sabu, who was Indian. And Sabu, the, the one Indian character, gets turned into a dog. Yeah. Which, uh, it's like, oh, that's, I mean, he gets turned back, granted, but, yeah, it was like, yeah. really? That's... Oh, also, one thing that I noticed, uh, like, early on with Abu is, uh, he's talking to Ahmed about his lineage, and he's like, I'm Abu the Thief, son of Abu the Thief, who is son of Abu the Thief. Really? Really? You couldn't have done better than that. Yeah, like, you're just, like, kind of perpetuating this idea that they're backwards like they can't come up with different names for their their kids not only that and like that they're all thieves yeah yeah so uh, that's uh that's a point on the the racism scale yeah so i'd say it's a two yeah i'd say probably i'd go with a two yeah Yeah. could be worse could be worse could be better yeah and uh so with that out of the way let's do a seamless transition so we just wanted to talk briefly about something that we chose to watch, which is the Eric Andre show. The most insane TV show I think I've probably ever seen in my life. It's pretty insane. It's pretty, it's up there. It's pretty up there. You've referred to it a few times as kind of the most punk rock TV show you've seen, and I, yeah. I'd have to go along with that. I think that's a pretty apt description. It's it's anarchy. So it's like yeah. a, it's a talk show. There's uh, four seasons of it out right now, and each season, it's all got kind of the standard talk show formatting with you know the desk and guests and a monologue and stuff but each episode opens up with eric andre running screaming out from backstage like smashing his desk diving into the band completely destroying doing all sorts of ridiculous stuff like there's one scene where he is shot in the head by abraham lincoln and then later in that same opening sequence is is getting fucked by abraham lincoln yeah so it's like that's uh that kind of sets the tone for the show for you yeah um yeah, and so they have um, all these guests on the show, and sometimes they're, like, really bad impersonators, and other times it's the real celebrity. It varies from, like, really, really well-known celebrities to reality TV show celebrities. And no matter who it is, they do what they can to unsettle the celebrity in all kinds of different ways. There's the other one where the monster's head just pops out of Eric Andre's yeah. desk when he's interviewing Jack, Jack McBrayer. Yeah. Just like busts through Eric's desk and starts screaming. And then later in that same interview, you can see him like skulking around the background of the set. To yeah. And never him even more. There's. So, in addition to it being a talk show and having that format, there are also like on street segments. And there's like a couple of recurring bits. bits. Yeah. Uh, one of them being Bird Up, the worst show on television. Yeah. <laughs> Where he's just in this green 
bodysuit with a fake bird attached to his shoulder and he keeps going up to people on the street like don't worry they're not gonna see me they're not gonna see me and like putting his fingers in their mouths yeah. and and whatever and just getting up to and uh, and they comply with it it's surprising how many people go along with it yeah so one of the other bits that uh starts happening later on in the series is uh the appearances of craft punk a guy who is sort of dressed up like one of the dudes from daft punk Except he's got macaroni and cheese glued to his helmet, and he's constantly shooting cheese whiz out of various parts of his body and yep. like putting craft singles over the guest's eyes and, and stuff like that. Eric Andre and Hannibal Burris, who is his co-host, which is awesome. Yeah, Hannibal's pretty great. Uh, they both hate him so much. Oh, they both <laughs> they both loathe craft punk. Yeah. It's it's a great show. Yes. It's insane. You can get watch it on Hulu. They've got all four seasons on there. It's it's an acquired taste for sure, but it's well worth checking out any of that sounds appealing to you and hey worst case scenario you hate it and the episodes are like 15 minutes long so you won't have a huge time sink so i guess uh just to kind of wrap things up we want to mention that you can find us on twitter instagram facebook facebook if you do a search for tara and andrew versus you'll find us us. yeah and our website tara and andrew versus.com it's a good way to keep on top of new episode releases all that stuff show notes all that so check that out also Uh, thank you to the Bampo, who are the finest purveyors of sloppy pop in the Pacific Northwest, uh, for allowing us to use their song lately off the album Setting the Paces. Thank you, Boat. Thank you, Boat. Check them out. Check out Unlikely Friends. Um, and then the last thing you should check out, a lot of things to check out. Sorry, everybody. Just, you know, Being just check compe- everything out. Compelling you to check everything out. Yeah. But, um... If you're in the Seattle area, we we would uh, highly encourage you all to go to Scarecrow Video because they're they're great. They've got a, a great selection of video stores, as we have mentioned. If you're not in Seattle, there I'm sure are other ind- independent video stores that you can patronize. There's a lot of stuff that they have that you just can't find elsewhere. Yeah, go in and and spend some money and support them. So that is it for this episode. Yeah. Um, until next time, catch you later, potato hags. Catch you later.